you found the Digging Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. If you've been listening to and enjoying our little podcast here, please consider helping the show out by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. All right, now before we get started, I just wanted to answer one email I got from our friend Peter, as many folks have been reaching out about this very same subject. Peter writes, looks like Hurricane Fiona is slamming the Halifax area with 60 mile per hour winds and storm surge, hoping for the best for everybody, but uh, sure could change the course of filming the fall endeavors on Oak Island, and who knows, wash another Templar artifact ashore. Uh, Thank you, Peter. Yes, Fiona did wreak some havoc in the maritime provinces of Atlantic Canada, and we were all very concerned about the team and everyone up there. Uh, I reached out to Laird Niven after the storm, and he confirmed that indeed all is well. Just some power outages, but not any serious damage in their area. I think it jogged pretty much to the northeast. Um, It seems like it was the worst of all this was really east of Oak Island, specifically, according to Laird, uh, Cape Breton, Prince Edward Island, and Newfoundland. Uh, We want to wish everyone in those areas uh, all the best and uh, prayers for speedy recovery, but it does look like... um, you know, uh, Oak Island wasn't on, wasn't a direct hit. So as far as the filming goes, I think it'll be a, uh, interesting episode for sure, but that's probably about all it'll, it'll, it'll do <laughs> for the show. At least that's what I'm hearing right now on today's podcast. We are going to continue our rewatch of season one of the curse of Oak Island and talk about episode four entitled the secrets of Solomon's temple. Now, just like episode three, the entirety of the work seen in this episode was performed over at the swamp and really nowhere else in the island. So we're going to take this episode chronologically and follow it pretty much as it aired rather than discuss each project separately like we often do here with these review shows. The episode begins right where the previous episode left off over at the swamp with the guys getting ready to start pumping it dry. This is the first time I think anyone's ever done that, or at least to this scale. It's pretty much all hands on deck with Rick and Marty Lagina, Craig Tester, Dave Blankenship, Jack Begley, a few more were there. I think Alex Lagina, maybe Peter Fornetti was there as well. They're all present for this difficult and really quite messy work. And it's made even more difficult by the fact that they are not permitted for very understandable environmental reasons, if I'm fair, to simply drain this gross and dirty, disgusting swamp water just a few feet across the road and into Mahome Bay. Instead, as they explain, they have to run these hoses much further away and uphill to dump the water into basically the woods there, somewhere where it can simply pool up and then absorb into the earth. Now, the guys lay out these huge, long hoses, and they start the pumps up only to have one of the hoses burst. Uh, But soon, after some, even at this point, rather cliche-sounding comments about how it must be the curse that caused the malfunction... The guys simply repair the hose, replace one of the parts, and restart the pumps. After the water starts flowing, the narrator starts talking about the swamp, and specifically about how there are some theorists who believe the money pit is simply nothing more than a decoy for the real location of the treasure, the swamp. And as he is saying this, we see a man named Petter Amundsen on a bicycle pedaling his way onto the island. Now, Petter is from Norway, so that must have been quite the bike ride. Um, 
And I only make that bad dad joke because I find showing him pedaling onto the island on a bicycle to be, I don't know, a, a, a little weird. <laughs> Don't you? I mean, maybe he flew into Halifax and they didn't have a rental car, so he left on a bicycle instead. I I doubt that, but honestly, I don't know why I found this scene so weird, but I, but I really did. Why, why is Petter Amundsen seen biking onto the island? I, I don't know. Anyway, I digress. Uh, as you guys might be able to tell, I'm uh, recovering a bit from a cold here, so uh, excuse the strange-sounding voice and noises or anything like that. Anyway... The team meets in the war room, which, remember, at this time was inside Dave Blankenship or Dan Blankenship's house. And they're meeting with the aforementioned Petter Amundsen, who is a church organist and has dedicated much of his life to a theory that he has formulated connecting the writings of William Shakespeare to Oak Island. Now, I've talked about this theory a lot, and I, and I think I've been very open over the course of this podcast about my feelings towards this theory. But it has been a while since we've done so, and since this is what this show is really all about, let's stop and just sort of get you up to speed on this theory if it is indeed new to you. Now listen, I'm going to have a lot to say about this theory as we go on here with these scenes in this episode, but let me just start it off uh, with a couple of things. First of all, of all the theories about Oak Island that I have dove into with any kind of depth, you know... This is, admittedly, my least favorite. Uh, it is so, and on many levels, not just because I think it's sort of unsubstantiated, but also because it is so dense and requires so much attention just to follow what the heck it's trying to say, it could just flat out give you a migraine. I mean, <laughs> and and even so, at the end of the day, after you've heard and seen these dozens of examples and pointing all these different things, you still often end up scratching your head just trying to wonder how someone could buy into this stuff. Anyway, let's talk about it. Uh, I mean, I kind of put my cards out there, but let's let's talk about it. Amundsen is, as I mentioned, a church organist from Norway. Now, I point this background out again, not, not to sort of belittle the guy, but because I do think it's important for you to understand that he is not a Shakespearean scholar, nor is he a historian with any formal background on the subject. But be that as it may, Amundsen has become rather famous over the past decade or so for this theory that he's formulated that claims Sir Francis Bacon was indeed the actual true author of all of Shakespeare's works. Now, that's not his his theory. He That's an old, old theory. His part is that he's found clues for this uh, in a book referred to by scholars as the first folio uh, and also that he connects it all somehow with the Oak Island mystery. Now, the first folio is the original published collection of William Shakespeare's plays, which was collected by two of his contemporaries and friends, the actors John Hemmings and Henry Condell. They first published it in 1623. This is about seven years after Shakespeare's death. And it is within these pages, this incredibly famous book, and they talk about how famous it is. Um, I think there's only like, I think I've heard there's only about 40 of these left and each worth millions and millions of dollars, right? But it's within these, these pages of these incredibly famous book where Amundsen says we can find the truth behind his theory. He believes the folio 
acts as a secret cipher, something called a stenographic code, steganographic code, sorry, which basically is a coded message that's hidden in some other kind of text or image, right? Likely within a painting a lot of times, or in this case, within a very big book. And we've seen other people posit theories about Oak Island to be within paintings, right? I believe Corian Mall has one of those in the Shepherds of Arcadia. Now, in this case, um, this code is laid out in an extremely elaborate and very complicated fashion. <laughs> Amundsen claims to have discovered and deciphered this code, at least to some degree, and that this code, written by Francis Bacon and his friends, or I guess we kind of more accurately can describe them as followers, right, than friends, really. Uh, this code weaves an incredibly complicated and layered trail to discovering how Bacon and his followers were indeed the true authors of Shakespeare's masterpieces, and that they buried the proof of this in the swamp along with some other stuff they didn't want anyone else to find. Uh, which we'll get to in a minute. He also believes that the first folio, if deciphered correctly, contains something of like a star map that places an X, so to speak, in the swamp, up towards the top of the triangle, now kind of what we would call the area of the eye of the swamp. Now, I'm not going to bother to try to explain how he does that, how he formulates this, this map and all this kind of stuff. Um, the show tries to show it to you, but needless to say, it's very complicated and in my mind also incredibly convoluted. And in the end, most likely, you know, a fantasy. Um, I spent many an hour reading through his theory over the years and my brain still hasn't fully recovered from that. Um, if you want, you can find the movie he made about this theory. I mean, he didn't make it himself. He made it along with actor Robert Crumpton. It's called The Cracking the Shakespearean Code or The Cracking the Shakespeare Code. Last time I checked, it was still on YouTube. I'd recommend watching it with a good bottle of Crown Royal, hopefully a new and unopened one, um, right next to you to help you get through it. <laughs> it actually has Oak Island at the end of it, so it's cool in that regard. Um, and it is honestly, you know, to some degree, uh, what we'd say, it has a level of fairness about the theory. Crumpton, the, 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 the man who joins him, is a Shakespearean actor and somebody who wrote a... Um, I believe a doctorate, uh, a, a doctoral thesis on Shakespeare, a dissertation on Shakespeare's work. Uh, he's not a believer. And then they also bring in some scholars to sort of contradict some of the ideas. So it is pretty fair and kind of a kind of a cool look. Uh, but it does get difficult to follow on. Um, now, let me clarify. Those who believe this theory are not, I'm just going to clarify the theory a bit for you here, are not doubting that the man William Shakespeare himself ever existed. They're only suggesting that the William Shakespeare of history, the man everybody knew and was friends with and had family and all this, was nothing more than, I suppose, something of a front man or even a patsy for other more educated people who were trying to remain anonymous, mostly to escape political persecution, which was a very real issue during their time. But Shakespeare the man was certainly in his lifetime credited with being the author, meaning that this theory did not come out until years and years after his death. Hundreds of years, if I'm not mistaken. Now, I'm sure you're aware of this already, but if not, this whole idea that Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare is essentially founded on one simple fact. And that fact, and it is a fact, and that is that we have very little, if anything, actually written in Shakespeare's own handwriting to verify anything. 
And we don't have the original manuscripts, the first drafts of any of his works. There's like a half a dozen legal documents with his signature on, and that's pretty much it. And this aspect of the conspiracy, and it has been a pretty large conspiracy, it would have to be if you think about it, uh, is indicative of what's wrong with how theories like this are presented on shows of this kind, and also indicative of the basic mistakes that those who support these theories are often making in the process. The part that always gets left out here is the simple fact that William Shakespeare, not writing his own work, is only one possible explanation for why nothing written in his hand remains today. And it's certainly not the most logical explanation for such a curiosity by any means. I mean, that's pretty obvious when you think about it, right? And I'm sure there are many famous people from that era who we don't have a lot of things written in their own hand. However, we, the viewers, are not presented with any alternative possibility. No other potential reason why this might be the case. So I guess guess that's where I come in. Now, I'm not here to tell you this theory isn't true. Well, maybe I am. But what I would like to do is point out how clues like this can often be presented to us in ways that make them seem more like um, concrete evidence than perhaps what they truly are when you dig down just a little bit deeper. Let me explain. Without doing even a second's research into the ball of possibilities with regards to not having any examples of Shakespeare's own writing, isn't there perhaps a better and even more logical sounding explanation than just leaping to the conclusion that it must mean Shakespeare didn't write his own stuff? Instead, someone else did and just paid him off to keep him sec- uh, keep it a secret for his entire career, and I suppose also paid off his wife and all of his kids and their friends and family as well for all their lives. You know, maybe the guy just wasn't sentimental at all about his own writing, so he felt no need to save any of it, didn't want to keep piles of paper hanging around. I mean, I can't imagine that that's an easy thing to do, right? Maybe the guy wasn't, you know, maybe the guy had bad um, and really kind of embarrassing penmanship. (laughs) Or perhaps during his writing process, he made tons of errors and lots of corrections, and he didn't want people to see those and criticize him for it. But also, you know, just to put a little more thought into it, we know for sure that Shakespeare borrowed from a lot of sources during his writings. Maybe in his original manuscripts, he referenced those sources. But when he presented the plays to the actors who first saw them, he wanted to, you know, pass these kinds of ideas off as totally original. I mean, I'm just spitballing here, guys. Like I said, there are there is a million potential reasons worth exploring, but you wouldn't know that from talking to Petter Amundsen, who accepts no other possibility besides this far-reaching and fantastic conspiracy theory that I guess means that Shakespeare was very uneducated and not very smart and couldn't write these things. Uh, seems like a weird guy to pick to, to be your patsy, but let me, either way. Let me give you another one to think about. Uh, a favorite of mine, really, which is not on the show, but I'm pretty sure is in the movie if you go and watch that. Amundsen likes to point out that within the first folio, the word bacon appears only twice in all of Shakespeare's plays. On both of those occasions, the word is incorrectly capitalized because the writer is referring to the delicious breakfast meat and not the Elizabethan philosopher and famous international man of mystery. So why then is the word capitalized both those times? How strange. Could he really secretly 
be referring to Sir Francis himself or even pointing the person looking for the code towards certain symbols or something like that. I mean, if that's all you even know, it does seem, right, a strange grammatical mistake to make in such an important publication, especially twice. But folks, (laughs) take a look at the rest of the first folio for yourself. You can find it online for free. Uh, Just start breezing through it, and it won't take you very long to realize that there are literally hundreds of words improperly capitalized throughout the entirety of the text. Are we saying they all hold some secret message? No. Only the words that we want to hold some secret message are ever mentioned and always presented as concrete evidence when it is clearly not concrete evidence. I think you get my point and my feelings here. So with that, let's get back to the war room. Amundsen starts the meeting by saying that this may sound a little braggish. This is a quote. This may sound a little braggish, but I claim to have found the treasure map leading to Oak Island, end quote. These crackpot sessions always start with lines like that, right? And is this the first ever what I call a crackpot session on Curse of Oak Island? You know, one of these things where a theorist comes in with a what to them sounds like a crazy idea. I'm not saying Amundsen is a crackpot. What I'm saying is, uh, you know, it's sort of presented as somebody with a fantastic theory. Anyway, Amundsen tells the team he has found a quote unquote coded map. With the first fo- within the first folios, that, as I mentioned earlier, I think, is something of a celestial map that leads back to Oak Island, the swamp specifically, and includes the boulders that make up Nolan's cross. However, Amundsen believes it is not a cross, but instead the boulders make up that make up the cross that we know of represent points within another religious symbol, which is called the Tree of Life. These points are named things like glory, justice, kingdom, and there's also one that's called mercy. It has a couple of names, but they're all sort of synonyms of mercy. Amundsen believes the mercy point is where the treasure is buried, which he says includes the menorah from Solomon's temple. Now, I'm not going to bother to explain why he says it includes that. Uh, It's just too much for me. (laughs) You can... You could see it in the movie, I'm pretty sure. Uh, Craig Tester asks the very reasonable question, why is the treasure under that particular stone? Or why do you think the treasure is under that particular stone? And it is within Amundsen's answer where we find yet another example of why this theory bugs me to no end. Amundsen explains that he came across or came to this conclusion because in the last page of The Tempest, Shakespeare tells the audience to quote unquote pierce mercy. Now those are his words, pierce mercy. He says Shakespeare tells the audience to do that. But does Shakespeare really say that? Now here's the actual quote from Prospero's epilogue, which concludes the Tempest. He writes, now I want spirits to enforce art to enchant and my ending is despair unless I be relieved by prayer which pierces so that it assaults mercy itself and frees all faults. As you from crimes would pardon be, let your indulgence set me free. Now, folks, you tell me, is Shakespeare, or I guess actually Francis Bacon and his buddies for that matter, are they actually telling the audience to, as Amundsen claims, pierce mercy? And this one little quote, which is twisted and restated by the theorist here to make some kind of point is the part that bugs me so much. Yes, the words pierce and mercy 
are indeed found on this page. But it really does take some creative acrobatics for anyone to get to a place where that means Shakespeare, quote, tells the audience to pierce mercy. And what does any of that have to do with the treasure in the first place? Throughout his entire theory, Amundsen makes to, uh, seems to make these huge leaps of faith, which we're supposed to just accept as truth, when if you just look even the slightest bit into it, you see the entire thing has just full of holes. And besides, this obvious misinterpretation of the text that you could see for yourself has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with Oak Island or treasure of any kind anywhere in the world. As this scene in the war room goes on, you can see Marty Lagina kind of agrees with me, right? I mean, the looks of bewilderment on his face during a lot of this is pretty obvious. Uh, he's got a bad poker face here. After Amundsen leaves, Marty calls his theory, quote unquote, great theater and obviously thinks it's a little nuts. But he is willing to play ball, at least to some extent. Uh, surprisingly, though, it is Rick that is far less enthusiastic about going down this road. And it's not because he thinks the theory is bogus, but instead because he doesn't like the idea of pursuing someone else's agenda. Looking back at this scene through a 2022 lens, I'm really fascinated by this reaction from Rick. He really looks like a treasure hunter here not wanting someone else to get credit for what he finds. But that's not the case anymore. Think of how many times they've chased, you know, Zena uh, Halpern's ideas or Fred Nolan's or something like that, you know. But back then, he really has that very, that, that Dan Blankenship idea of treasure hunting. You know, no one is allowed on the land, right? But Rick is overruled by Marty and the rest of the team. Uh, another thing you never see really happen anymore. And honestly, it really seems like Marty is only interested in it because maybe he thinks it makes good television, right? Maybe he finds something amusing about it. Who knows? So Marty then goes with Petter Amundsen to look for the, a rock that he says represents the bottom of the tree of life symbol. He calls it the kingdom stone. Now, just to orient you, this would be kind of further straight down from the bottom boulder of what we call Nolan's Cross. Amundsen guides them to where uh, the area is, and he wants to look at, and lo and behold, he finds a stone. I mean, who would have thunk it? Stone on an island in the North Atlantic. Uh, well, the first stone, actually, he doesn't really like, but then he finds another one, and he's certain that this other one is the stone. This is the stone. No, wait, wait, wait. This is the stone. Again, Marty seems more amused uh, than intrigued, and as they flip over this new stone, you can see Amundsen uh, you know, do another one of those things that sort of theorists like this often do. Um, on the underside of the stone, he points to three white marks and makes a triangle out of these three marks, which he very confidently claims is some sort of confirmation that they have indeed found the right stone. Of course, he never explains why that would be a confirmation. He also never said he was looking for a stone that might have a triangle on it at any point before this, as far as we can tell. But be that as it may, uh, if you pause the video, you can find dozens of other little white marks on the bottom of this rock, and you too can make all sorts of fun shapes. I know I'm making light of this, but the point is, if you go looking for a mystery, oftentimes you'll find something that you can convince yourself is mysterious. Now, as we come back from commercial, we see there is a helicopter parked on Oak Island. You don't see that every day. The plan is for Rick and Marty to hop in the chopper and fly over the swamp to see why it is taking so long to drain. It's been days since they started the pumps, and apparently there still is a lot of water in it. 
it's another indicator of how much things have changed, right? I mean, it really looks like they went to some local rental place and rented some pumps here, as opposed to nowadays when some drainage expert would be brought in from Calgary or somewhere like that with three tractor trailers full of gear to do all this. They also... Um, They're also going to take the opportunity while flying over the swamp to take a look at this Mersey point to see what it might look like from above. And again, the risk of repeating myself, this is a period when the swamp was very, very, really very inaccessible. That has changed dramatically over the years. Just look at the southeast corner in in these pictures where Laird this past year and his team were doing the work um, where they found those First Nations artifacts. At this point, only seven years ago, that work would be almost totally impossible because they just wouldn't be able to do the things that they can do now, right? The resources these guys have at their have at their disposal have increased so dramatically since this first season of the show. It's basically no part of Oak Island. The team can't reach and start digging if the government would have let it, would let them, you know. As the team flies over the Mercy Point, they see a group of stones, which Rick and Marty say are in some kind of diamond pattern. Now, I have to say, despite the images and the graphics shown here and pausing it a few times, I have no idea what they're talking about with this pattern they claim to be seeing. There are tons of rocks in this shot. And again, you can make whatever pattern you want out of them. Triangles, trapezoids, you name it. It's a geometry teacher's smorgasbord of fun. Maybe they're seeing something that I'm just not picking up here. It's hard to really tell. Who knows? Anyway... After the helicopter lands, Rick and Marty bring Petter Amundsen out to this Mercy Point area that they just looked at overhead. And weirdly, they aren't talking about these stones now that they claim to see from overhead. Not sure why that is. (laughs) But anyway, the guys lay some plywood sheets out into the muck and try to create some sort of wooden walkway to get them out there to their target location. As they're doing this, it is teeming down rain, which can't be helping this pumping project much, right? And man, this work looks absolutely miserable. I mean, they must really have been crunched for time here because I can't see any good reason not to wait for some at least halfway decent weather to do all this. But either way, I suppose at least it makes for good television because it was really quite uh, <laughs> quite terrible conditions. Rick and Petter probe down into the swamp and with a piece of rebar and hit what seems like a solid surface, likely a boulder. But if you want to be really hopeful, I I guess it's perhaps concrete. But Petter Amundsen has to take his leave from Oak Island. So unfortunately for him, he will not be around to see the results of all this wet work. Now, before we say goodbye to Mr. Amundsen, I think this is the last time we ever see him on the island. I don't think he ever comes back to follow up on this theory, even after all these years. Am I right about that, guys? Do you remember a time where he's come back? Am I forgetting another another episode where he was on the island? Let me know if I am. Island at gmail.com. All right. It's time to start kind of wrapping up the episode a bit here. Uh, after the last commercial break, we come back to a meeting in the war room with two metal detecting experts named Dave Spencer and Steve Zizulik. Tough one to say. The latter seems very exuberant about being here on Oak Island, already seems to be a believer in the treasure. Not sure that's a good thing. Certainly not something I like as uh, someone who prefers skeptics doing this work, but hey, what can we do? Besides the normal metal metal detectors we see Gary Drayton use nowadays, these kind of handheld ones, these guys are going to use a a really cool piece of kit. It's called the Lorenz Deep Max X6 which is a sort of, uh, I guess, deeper ground metal detector, deeper than the normal handheld detectors can go. 
And from what they say, it, it apparently offers some sort of 3D representation of what it's detecting. Again, we only hear them say this because we don't actually see the Deep Max in use in this episode. So more on that in the final episode, the next episode. Rick and uh, Steve Zizulik, along with Charles Barkhouse, head to the swamp to check out this mercy point while Marty helps Dave Spencer, the other metal detecting guy, build the setup needed for, for the Deep Max, which apparently is like some sort of PVC pipe thing. While out there on the pieces of plywood, Rick asks Steve if his handheld detector he is carrying can detect gold or silver if it were encased inside a concrete vault of some kind. Uh, Steve says it can, so now Rick is really hoping that what he and Petter were hitting was with their rebar was indeed concrete. Now, eventually, Steve gets a hit that he says is likely of the maybe the precious metal variety. The guys get so excited, they actually jump chest deep into the swamp, Rick ruining his cell phone in the process. And again, these are the scenes that made his legend, right? This, these are the scenes that made Rick made us love Rick. Scenes just like this one right here. Wet, filthy, but always totally willing and dedicated to the hunt. Uh, both he and Steve uh, feel like they're standing on something hard and flat, but also apparently contains a metal of some kind that isn't iron. Understandably, everyone gets super excited, especially the narrator who launches into a diatribe of all of his greatest hits, the uh, the Holy Grail, the Ark of the Covenant, all of them. After the guys um, presumably, I guess, dry themselves off a bit, though obviously not before they're able to change into something less filthy, Rick, Steve, and Charles drive to meet Marty and tell him their news. There's a lot of genuine excitement. There are high fives, lots of smiles, you know. Just a really kind of uh, upbeat feeling of hope for what they might next find in the swamp, right? And as the episode ends, we see these guys finishing up getting this deep max detector ready and driving it over to the swamp, preparing us for what is to come in episode five, which is, by the way, the season finale for season one of The Curse of Oak Island. That's correct. The first season was only five episodes long. Now, before we finish up here, I just want to mention something else. Over the years since this episode aired, the team has actually excavated this area quite a bit. The area where Petter Amundsen said they would find the Mercy Point and the menorah from Solomon's Temple. I mean, they weren't doing it with the intention of looking specifically for this Mercy Point, or at least that is not how it was shown to us in the shows. Um, But... If what Amundsen is hitting here with his piece of rebar in this episode and getting all excited about is indeed what he was looking for, then it does appear that since this time, the team has looked pretty extensively in this exact area and have not found such such a treasure. I know at some point in the last couple of years, our friend Gina uh, asked me this very question over on the Facebook page, and she sent some great images that to compare this all and see what we're talking about. And I'll share them with you uh, over there again now. And Gina, if you're listening, since rewatching the episode, I did go back and look into this a lot more. And I got to say, it does appear that the work done in the, it was done in the eye of the swamp. Remember that the blue clay mine, and also the work on excavating the paved area. Uh, that between those two projects, we certainly have dug extensively right in this area. And so far, again, no menorah from Solomon's temple, no hidden manuscripts, nothing. So, can we put an X through this theory, as Rick likes to say? Yeah, I think I would lean towards saying exactly that.
All right, that's going to do it for this episode of the Digging Oak Island podcast. Shameless plug time. Don't forget, every Wednesday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m., I'm DJing on WDVR-FM. You'll find me hosting a show called the Bourbon Street Bistro from 2 to 4 p.m., playing you the music of New Orleans. And then from 4 to 5 p.m., hosting a show called Island Vibes, where I play music with a little kind of tropical feel to it. You can listen by going to WDVRFM.org or just by telling Alexa to turn on WDVR. And don't forget, you can really help out the show by becoming a patron. If you think the show is worth five bucks a month, head over to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. Also, if you'd like to help the podcast out in another way, then you certainly will be doing us a great favor by giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Thank you to everyone who's done that already. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the time you took to do that and for the kind words. Also, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. We are at Digging Oak Island. And if you have any questions or comments for me, um, just send them. The best way to do it is email diggingoakisland at gmail.com. And just keep in mind, if you do send me an email or direct message on social media, I may just answer it here on the podcast. So if you don't want your message read aloud, please make a note of that for me. Well, as Dave used to say, it's crown time. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.